Amen. That's a blessing. Thank you for that. God's been getting people through storms for a long, long time. He's the master of it. I'm thankful for that. Thankful you're in church tonight. And I'm thankful for the priority that you put on Sunday night. And looking out across the congregation, most of you all, and think probably everybody in here on Wednesday night as well. Thank you for being in God's house. And uh, I, I know that you do it not for me. You do it because you love the Lord and you want to grow in your walk with Him. But I do not, I do not know how a Christian could be all that they're supposed to be and need to be if they were not in God's house Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night on a consistent basis. And so thank you. Thank you for doing that. I also want to just publicly say and thank you to Brother Gerald for the new songs that he's been putting into our song service. And I want to just be clear on something, and it's this. We're never going to leave the hymns behind and the old hymns behind, and they they link us to the past, and, and, and we're so thankful for those songs and the doctrine that are in them, and so you're always going to hear those old songs at Bethany Baptist Church. But let's be very clear. Our God is alive. Our God is not a dead God. He is still at work today, and, and He is the, the, the author of a new song, and new songs, and He's still working. And so there's a lot of new songs coming on the scene today and that our living God is helping and giving people that can be a blessing to us. And so I'm thankful that we can have the best of both worlds and thankful for Brother Gerald being willing to do that and learn those songs, find those songs, and teach us those songs so that we can have those and in our music service. All right, 2 Kings chapter number 10. 2 Kings chapter number 10. If you find that, stand with me. I'm also going to ask you to do me a favor, and that is to find 2 Timothy chapter number 3. And if you would just put something there, and toward the end of the sermon, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. It'll help us a little later on if you already have that mark, that we can just go right there. We're going to be looking, of course, at 2 Kings chapter number 10 tonight, and, and I will try to make sense of the entire chapter. Uh, it is 36 verses, and so for sake of time, we're just going to read in uh, verse number 26 and just read down uh, a few verses tonight, and then we'll pray and get into it. 2 Kings chapter number 10, verse number 29, the Bible says, How be it? From the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not after them. To wit, or let me explain. The golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, the children, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Verse 31, though. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. Those words are the words that captivated me in the study this week. He took no heed 
to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. And so if you've been following along as we've been dealing with this man, Jehu, uh, man, he's impressive. He has done some incredible things, and, and his zeal has been great for God. But in the end, in the end, the Bible concludes his life and says that he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity and chance that we have once again to assemble as an ecclesia, a called out assembly, your people, your church, God, to open up your word and allow you to do a work in our hearts and lives. And so, Father, we're asking tonight, would you meet with us? Would you just enlighten your word for us through the work of your spirit in our lives? And Lord, help us to see what's here, to see why it's here, and God, to see how it applies to each of our individual lives, and then that we would take it and not just be hearers of the word, but that we would go out these doors and be doers of your word tonight. And we'll thank you for everything you do in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We get one more drink here, a little bit of a voice issues tonight, and we'll get into it. <clears throat> what epitaph will be written on your tombstone? On your tombstone. The Romans seem to almost have invented the epitaph. I, I don't know if it's because Latin looks so good on gravestones. If you want to, when I die, if you want to put something in there in Latin, I don't really care what it says. It just looks cool. And so maybe that would be okay. One of the standard Roman epitaphs reads this way. Probably not going to pronounce it exactly perfect, but it reads as follows. Eram, non sum, non curo. This is what that means. I was, I am not. I care not. So on a tombstone, I was, I'm not, and I don't care. Contrast that to the attitude with the words that were engraved upon the tombstone of a man by the name of Francis Appleby. Francis Appleby on his tombstone, it says, I nothing am, I nothing have, I nothing care, I nothing crave, but that my Jesus I may see, and that he may be all to me. That sounds a whole lot better than, I was, I'm not, I don't care. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds like something more like we would want on our tombstone. These examples show that What's written on our tombstone can reveal a great deal about a person and reveal a great deal about where that person likely is going to spend eternity. So I want you to use your imaginations with me tonight, and I want you to think of having the opportunity to go and visit 
your own grave site. I want you to imagine walking up and down the rows of a cemetery. Maybe you've done this before, looking for another name. But, but on this occasion, you're looking for your name, engraving on a gravestone. Imagine you find it. What's the first thing you're going to look for? Well, I no doubt would first look at the date of my death. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to, but just out of curiosity, I would have to see. I just wouldn't be able to resist the urge to find out when I died. But I think the next thing I would look for is that short statement of meaning, that epitaph of my life. What would it say? If your entire life could be reduced to one single sentence, how would it read? What would be chiseled into the stone underneath your name next to those dates? Jehu, king of Israel. We expect from what we've seen thus far to find something really good written about this man. But he was given the most unhappy of epitaphs. And it wasn't written by a relative. It wasn't written by some scholar of his day. His epitaph was written by the Almighty God. And it reads as follows. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. God Almighty, when summarizing his life, that's what he said about this man. In other words, let, let me put it more simply. It said this, Jehu gave God a half-hearted effort. Jehu gave God a half-hearted effort. Would to God that wouldn't be said about us and our lives. I suppose, again, what's surprising about this epitaph is that we have gone through and looked at this life of this man by the name of Jehu, and we see that he's extremely zealous for the glory of God. If you go back in your minds, and, and, and it'd be two weeks ago, but you remember chapter number nine, and Jehu had been anointed king over Israel, and he had been done so through the prophet, uh, the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And so in keeping with the old prophecy of Elisha, Jehu does what was asked of him, and he goes and he removes Ahab's evil sons, Joram and Ahaziah. He takes them from the thrones of Israel, of Judah. He, he pulls them out of the city. He kills them in his zeal. He's also commanded to go back to Jezreel, where Jezebel, Jezebel has painted her face. She's looking down from her high tower. He cries up to the servants, and he says, throw her out, and they do. All of that keeping with the clear command that God had given him back in chapter 9 and verse number 7. And so we said this, Jehu, he was an instrument of divine vengeance. God used him as this instrument to bring out his vengeance on the house of Ahab and the house of Jezebel. His God-given task was this, it was to obliterate completely all the descendants and relatives of Ahaz and Jezebel. 
Because God knew the type of evil that they would perpetuate. And he understood the type of opposition that they would, they would be and had been and would continue to be for God and his purposes for both Israel and Judah. And so he, he starts to carry out that command in chapter number nine, but it's not completed. And so chapter 10 opens up and he's going to continue th- this, this ministry, if you would, of vengeance upon the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And in order to do that, he needs help. And so in the first few verses, let's, let's read them in chapter 10. Ahab, the Bible says, had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters. He sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying. And so he writes his letter, time out, to, to the leaders, the rulers there in Jezreel, those who were uh, the, the authorities of the day. And there was a lot of children of Ahab and Jezebel. In fact, the Bible says there was 70 sons. And so he writes in a letter, and this is what he says. Now, as soon as this letter cometh to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, seeing that Ahab and Jezebel's sons are there, and there are with you chariots and horses and fenced cities also in armor, seeing the, the situation, and it's not going to be easy to just infiltrate Jezreel and kill all of their sons. He said, look even out the best and the meatest of your master's sons. Look out the very best of your leaders of those in Jezreel. And why don't you put him in charge and why don't you go fight for your lives and fight for your future against Ahab and Jezebel's house? And so the the news, of course, by this time of Jehu's military exploits, I'm certain they had reached them. They knew the, the type of man that Jehu was. And the last thing they wanted to do, these leaders of Jezreel and these leaders of Samaria, the last thing that they wanted to do is to infuriate Jehu more because they knew what he was capable of. And so when Jehu's letters arrived and the leaders read it, the Bible says in verse number four that they were exceedingly afraid. They're they're like, we've got to do something about this. We have all of Ahab's sons that are living here with us and around us. Jehu's coming after them and and we're standing in the way. We need to do something and, and fix this. And so the Bible tells us, his servants are on his side. The, the servants agree that they'll do whatever Jehu wants. And so once he has the servants on his side, he writes a second later, letter and he says, okay, you, you don't want to stand in the way. You don't want to be a part of this. Then here's what you do now that you're on my side. He says, I want you to take all the heads, all 70 of the heads of Ahab's sons and I want you to remove them from their bodies. I know that's kind of graphic to us, but that's what he said. Uh, take care of this. Follow through in completeness in verse 6 through 8. And, and so that's exactly what these leaders of Samaria do. They, they go and they round up all 70 of Ahab's sons and, and they remove their heads from off their bodies. You can read it yourself. But they're still afraid of Jehu. And and, and it seems that they're still scared to to go and face Jehu. So they take all the heads and they put them in baskets. And and they call FedEx. And FedEx comes and picks them up. 
And FedEx delivers them to Jehu, and Jehu opens up this package, and here's all these baskets, and there's 70 heads of the sons of Ahab. And Ahab's done. The future of his family is done. Because God again knew the nature of their leadership and where they would lead Israel. In fact, while some would look at that, it's not even in my notes, while some would look at that and say, that, that's a cruel God, that's a, that's a cruel way. No, that's a merciful God. He was being merciful to all of the nation of Israel and all to this world by removing their, them and, and their son, Ahab and his sons from leadership and allowing them to lead Israel further down the path that they were headed. And so now that Ahab's sons are gone... Jehu, still in his zeal, he turns his attention to the worshipers of Baal. He's going to bring vengeance upon the temple of Baal. Baal worship was so common in that day that not even the mighty Elijah could get rid of it. But but Jehu, he's he's kind of a crafty man. He's a thinker. And, and, and he realizes, hey, there's something I can do here. So look at verse 18 of this same chapter with me. But Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. He, he calls to all of the nation of Israel and he says, I know that there's a lot of Baal worshipers out there. And I know that you're sad because Ahab's gone and Ahab was a great worshiper of Baal. But what you need to know about me as a king is Ahab, he didn't worship Baal near the way that I'm going to worship Baal. In fact, I'm going to throw the, this church service, this ceremony, this worship service to Baal. I'm going to throw one like nobody has ever seen before. Verse 19, they therefore call unto me. All the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests, let none be wanting. For I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting it, he shall not live. In other words, if you're a Baal worshiper and you don't show up to this, you're going to be punished. Every bell worshiper needs to show up. I need the priest and I need the servants and I need the prophets. I need everybody here. But Jehu, the Bible says in the verse of 19, did it subtly to the intent that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. And so Jehu said in verse 20, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal and the house of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, Oh, bring forth the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. And he brought forth the vestments. And Jehu went and Jonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal and said unto the worshipers of Baal, Search, all right, let's make sure here, and look that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord. We don't want any servants of the Lord. We want worshipers of Baal only. And they no doubt looked around and they're like, oh no, no, nobody here that worships God, the Lord, only worshipers of Baal. And when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed fourscore men without and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hand escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. 
And it came to pass as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in, slay them, let none come forth. They smote them with the edge of the sword and the guard and the captains cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal and they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burned them and break down the images of Baal and break down the house of Baal and and made it an outhouse or a draught house until this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. That's awesome. I mean, again, his zeal for God. He says, I'm going to take care of this. And he not only has now completely obliterated the house of Ahab, but now he has completely obliterated the worship of Baal, something that no one else could do. And so while this is a bloody chapter in history, it's making clear two facts. One, there was judgment that needed to be had in the nation of Israel. Number two, it's showing us that Jehu was a zealous king, and he seemed to be zealous for the Lord. I I don't know about you, but I read this, and I think to myself, if the chapter ended right here, if the chapter ended with verse number 28... In our minds, and none of you do, in fact, I would venture to say that many of you here, you might have recognized the name of Jehu as a king, but you could not have probably told me anything about Jehu. And if I would have said, list out the great kings of the nation of Israel, you would have come up with names like Josiah or Hezekiah and, of course, King David. But but I would venture to say that the majority of the people in this auditorium, nobody would have said, Jehu, I'm telling you, that Jehu, he, he he was quite a king. But if it stopped in verse number 28, that's exactly what we would have said. And we would have put his name right next to the names of all of the other great kings of Israel. But verse 29, how be it? Sad word right there. Of all that he did, how be it? Although, hold on a second. There's one more thing that has to be said about Jehu. From the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not after them to wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. Here's, here's Jehu. And he takes care of Ahab's house. And he takes care of Baal. And he does so many wonderful things for, for God. But it appears to me that how be it right there, it appears to me that that there was a line drawn in the sand. And as Jehu stood on that line, he looked back at all of these great and mighty things he did for God. And he might even have put his thumbs in his lapel and thought, man, I have done some great things for God. But there was a line in the sand which he said, I did all that good, that I'm not going to do. And he refused to finish the job God had called him to do. By Jehu's day, the golden calves, which we've talked about, they had practically become Israel's state religion. 
These golden idols, which had first been set up by Jeroboam, and they were set up either to make things more convenient for the people of God so they didn't have to go clear back to Jerusalem for worship, or I believe they were set up because Jeroboam wanted to be able to control those people, and he was afraid that if they left and went back to Jerusalem, that they would see his wickedness, and they would not return back, and he would lose some authority. And and so in an alternate way, he, he sets up this, this temple. He sets up these golden calves and he sets up this seeker sensitive worship in Bethel and Dan. And the Bible tells us about it in first Kings chapter number 12. And the idea is this, that people would still worship the Lord God of Israel, except they would use golden calves to do it. But wait a second. We talked about this when we came through that portion of scripture. God is not to be worshiped any way that we please. He is to be worshiped only as he chooses. And golden calves were exactly the kind of graven image he forbade in his law. Thus he refused to be worshiped at the shrines that Jeroboam set up in opposition to Jerusalem. And it's sad to say, but for all his zeal of the Lord, Jehu refused to destroy the high places at Bethel and Dan. Some would read this story and they'd find it a head scratcher as as to how Jehu could be so cruel and how he could go so far in his vengeance. But strangely enough, the Bible does not condemn Jehu for going too far. What the Bible is going to condemn is Jehu for not going far enough. You see, the king failed to give God the one thing that he demands, the one thing that our God desires, and that is his whole heart. Every morning, every evening, every man, woman, and child in Israel, they would wake up every day and they would recite Deuteronomy chapter number 6, verse 4. It was this. This is what they would recite every day. This is the people of of God. They, They would wake up every day and they would recite these words as a family. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. I don't know whether Jehu uttered that verse day after day or not, but I can tell you he failed to live up to it. He destroyed God's enemies. He overthrew wicked tyrants. He destroyed Baal, but he failed to give God his whole heart. So in the end, although he was used by God, he was also judged by God. Which leads me to this thought. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? See, the life of Jehu raises a vital question for every one of us. We often, like Jehu, we, we want to look at all the things that we've done, and, and we want to glory in all the things that we've done and all the things that we do. And, and we have this long list. Oh, it's probably not written out, but in our minds and hearts, we have this long list of, God, I do this for you, and God, I do this for you, and God, I've done this for you, and God, I've been this for you, and all of these lists. And, and while that list is great, and I'm thankful for all the things that any one of us has ever accomplished and done for the Lord, there's another list we need to consider. And that is the list of the things we haven't done for him. Because God's not primarily concerned with all you've done. He's also concerned with the things we don't do. For the areas we hold back in. The things that we hold withhold from him. 
the one thing that God has always demanded if from every one of us, from his people, from the beginning of time until now, he's always demanded an undivided heart. He's demanded it from his people in the Old Testament. He said in Deuteronomy 10, 12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. But he didn't stop in the Old Testament. He demands it to this very day. Jesus himself taught when he was asked, Master, which is the great commandment of law? And Jesus responded, he answered and said unto them, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. He doesn't just want half of it. He wants all of it. You see, the one thing that God wants from us turns out to be everything. All he wants is all we have. All of us. The words of Jesus thus race... The same question that is raised in Jehu's epitaph is the question that all of us have to ask this evening. Have I given the Lord my whole heart? Have I renounced every other affection? Is there anything that I've said, God, I'm not going there. That's too much. That's too far. God, I've done all this. You you have to be content. I'm not going to go any further. You see, the question needs to be asked because many churches... I'm convinced of this, are half full of half-hearted Christians. God's Word warns us of this when Paul wrote to Timothy. Turn over there. I asked you to mark it earlier, but look at these verses. By the way, if what's going on in Israel this very night doesn't cause you to realize that in the last days, we're in the last days then I I don't know what's going to cause you to think that and realize that. Paul writing to Timothy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he, he tells us, what's it going to be like in those last days? And this is what he says, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. When Paul wrote of these terrible times, he was not talking exclusively or even primarily about people outside of the church. On the contrary, you go down to the very next verse and he says, having the form of godliness but denying the power thereof. In other words, they look like Christians. They, they know the Bible. They've learned the right spiritual vocabulary. They go to church. They're involved in some form of ministry. But they, they, they maybe even read their Bibles and pray. Yet they are not lovers of God through and through. They're holding back. I think you could take the list that Paul gave and and it could really be broken up into three unholy affections that in these last days that people are going to be lovers of these three things themselves, money and pleasure. These are exactly, I'm talking about precisely the sins that prevail in the 21st century, that prevail in the world that we live in. I would say it this way. These are the words that I would use. We are a narcissistic society. Our society, our culture, it is filled, our world is filled with narcissism. What is narcissism? It's just the love of self. Consumerism. 
the love of things, the love of money, hedonism, the love of pleasure. Listen, it's not difficult to find these three words in our society. In fact, it would be difficult to find three words that better describe the spirit of our age. Let's just, let's just spend a moment on these. Love of self, narcissism. It now seems to be the basic premise of, of American life. Let's, let's just think right now about America, about our world. The, the, the motto of our day is take care of yourself, look out for yourself, feel good about yourself. I know that I, I, I say a lot about social media, and a lot of you love social media, but I'm telling you, social media has fed into this narcissistic view that people have. The growing self-centeredness of contemporary culture, it can be traced in, in popular magazines. This is what one man said. He says, one of the leading magazines in the 1950s was called Life. As life began to lose its appeal, people started subscribing to People. Then they switched to us. Then finally, someone published a magazine in the 1990s that called itself, that was called Self. If we don't have magazines today, for the most part, we're going away from that. But I suppose if a magazine was to come in today that was to identify the culture of today, it wouldn't be life, it wouldn't be people, it wouldn't be us, it wouldn't be self. I think it'd be called me. Me. We love me, don't we? Brother Jones said on Wednesday night, I don't know that I've ever thought of it this way until he said this. He said, I am one of eight billion people. You are one of eight billion people. There are eight billion people on this planet but, but somehow society has tried to convince all of us, you're special, you're unique, you're wonderful, you're one of a kind. If you was to take, and you probably can't even see it, there's, there's one little dot there, and that represents you. I can't say it. He tried to help me, but this is the, the, the world's tallest building. If, if we could blow this screen up, to the size of the world's tallest building, and we could expand it a mile wide, that would be the closest we could get to representing 8 billion people. And you are one unrecognizable, I'm not, I'm not being rude or mean, I'm just saying in the view of the people living in this world, you are one unnoticeable little speck that you, you'd have to... You'd have to zoom in so close just to even identify. And yet we walk around. <laughs> this world only knew who I was. There's 8 billion of us. There's nothing special about any of us. They say, according to the funeral directors daily, that the average size of a funeral is 36. That means the average person comes to the end of their life and they've been told they're special, they're unique, they're wonderful, they're one of a kind. But at the end of their life, 36 people is all that show up to their funeral, the average funeral. Let's just say that you're super special. You're wonderful. Let's say that you're able to impact 10,000 people so that we have to use the football stadium over here to fit everybody in. Do, do you understand 10,000 people 
If that's how many you influence, 10,000 people in view of 8 billion is still one tiny little speck. I didn't, I didn't know anything about this until this person got involved in football. And I had to ask my kids, okay, who's this person that's hanging out with this Kansas City Chiefs player? And they're like, Taylor Swift? I'm like, yeah, who is this Taylor Swift? That, that just shows you how out of it I am. And my son, who's in Bible college, he said, Dad, she's only like the most popular person on the face of the planet. I said, how do you know this? He said, because she has like 270 plus million followers on Instagram. Well, that's impressive. She must be awfully special that a measly 3.41% of the population follow her. Now, do you understand? He says, this is like the most popular. 3.41% of this world's population is all that follows her, and she's the most popular. And yet she's going to walk around like, I'm, I'm, I'm special. Really? Because 3% of the entire population knows who you are. I don't know who you are. You can't be that special. You, you don't catch a football or throw a football. You can't be that special. <laughs> but that's, that's the world we live in. A narcissistic world that causes all of us to think that we're something incredible. But then there's the love of money. So many books, podcasts, social media posts, even sermons all about money. American culture is mainly striving and thinking about making money, saving money, especially spending money. You can make a lot of money just helping people manage their money. If you want to see how important and, and how much society that we live in, how much they love money, and you want to see it in action, watch when the, the lottery jackpot reaches $50 million and just watch as people line up to buy tickets. The love of pleasure, hedonism. More than any other civilization in human history, our postmodern Western culture makes pleasure its business. We're not just simply entertaining ourselves. We're turning entertainment into an industry. Do you understand again, and I'm a sports fan, but do you understand a teenage boy that can throw a football? Do you understand the money that he's making straight out of high school as a 17, 18-year-old kid because he can go and entertain the masses and the money will throw in it so that we can be entertained? Especially, especially bitter about football after some of the recent games this weekend. So it's a good week to preach on it. Any any time a team from Oklahoma wins. <sighs> no, I'm kidding. Neil Postman wrote a book. I read it many years ago. I'd, I'd recommend it to all of you. Called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. But the real problem is not the narcissistic, consumeristic, hedonistic culture around us. The real problem is that these three loves have stolen at least half of the hearts of half of the people of God. I want to ask you a question. I want you to really think about it as we move toward the conclusion. 
What would the average church look like if the average person in the average church loved itself, loved money, and loved pleasure as much as they loved God? If we could go into our church, Bethany Baptist Church, let's just talk about us. And if we begin to look, if the average person at Bethany Baptist Church loved itself, money, and pleasure as much as it loved God, how would our church look? Here's what I think. I think it looked pretty much like it looks today. People in love with themselves would rather go to church largely to meet their own needs rather than to worship God. It's played out in the singing, played out in the way people listen to preaching. People in love with money, they would be stingy with their tithes and offerings, and they would fret over every expenditure of the church's money. Not because the church is struggling financially, but because they love money. People in love with pleasure would be more concerned about what they get out of worship than what they put into it. And they would frequently choose to be somewhere else rather than church on Sundays and Wednesdays as long as they were entertained. If that is indeed true, Bethany Baptist Church then we have to ask, what's the condition of our own hearts? Would our epitaph read as Jehu's indicating that we're giving God a half-hearted effort? There's not a, there's not a person here on a Sunday night in this auditorium that couldn't give me a long list of all that they're doing for God. But unfortunately, there's another list. And that list describes things they refuse to do for God. Refuse to give to God. See, God made us to love Him passionately. And it takes more than a half-hearted effort to maintain a true love relationship. Imagine with me, a young man in our church meets his bride and the one he's going to spend the rest of his life with. And he's sitting there and he's proposed and she's agreed. And now they're talking about their future. And the young man says, here, I want you to know for the rest of my life, I'm going to give you half of myself. I'll be around, I promise you, half of the time. I'm going to provide for half of your emotional and physical needs. What I do with my other 50% of my time, that's my business. But look, I'm willing to spend at least half of the rest of my life with you. I know what you're thinking. That's so sweet. What more could a young lady dream of? No. It's no way to establish a marriage. But it's also no way to live the Christian life. God wants all of us. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of my heart, not just half of it. So the only thing we can do tonight is to repent if we see half-heartedness in our lives and to offer and grant God our whole hearts. God, there's nothing off limits anymore. There's nothing I will not do anymore. 
It's, it's being a disciple. God, here is all of me. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to offer myself on the altar. You do what you want with me, wherever you go, whatever you say, whatever you want. It's all yours, God. I give it all to you. I love this song that we sing so often. Come thou found of every blessing. I have quoted this probably more than any other song in my sermons. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's where we hit. But don't forget the next line. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Every person in this auditorium should start every day in prayer saying, Lord, today. We should start out this new week saying, today, I give you my whole heart all over again. I'm holding nothing back. I give you my life with all of its desires, with all of its affections. As I concluded this sermon and I began to put the final pieces on this sermon, I'd really hope to, to find an epitaph that I could give you, some inspiring tombstone that I read. And I'm sure there's one out there. But I spent enough time searching that I finally gave up because I couldn't find an example of a tombstone that I thought would be a fitting way to end this sermon. So I proposed a different epitaph, one suitable for any Christian gravestone. And it's found in 1 John 4.10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. See, no matter how half-hearted you are, no matter how half-hearted I am, no matter how half-hearted you've been and I can be and I've been, no, no matter how, how, how half-hearted you are or may become, here's what we need to remember. That God has given us 100%, 100% of His love in His heart to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I think that's worthy of our whole heart in return. Let's not get to the end of our lives and say, well, they did a lot of good things. How be it? Let's get to the end of our lives and have it said, like David, he was a man after God's own heart. Every head bowed, every eye closed.